Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast, equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. We're currently sharing a series of talks given at the Pastoral Refreshment Conference in 2016, and this week we're listening to the second of these talks on Jesus the Pastor. Pastoral Refreshment Conferences are opportunities for leaders and their spouses to come away for three days to receive spiritual encouragement and refreshment in beautiful surroundings. Our Pastoral Refreshment Conferences in 2024 are currently open for booking, So we'd love to invite you along to join us. They take place at the end of January in Hertfordshire and the beginning of February in the Lake District. You can find out more about these on our website at www.livingleadership.org forward slash PRC for Pastoral Refreshment Conference. Anyway, over to today's episode. John chapter 11 beginning to read at verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you. And yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, If he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. May the Lord bless his word. Good morning. And let me say what a joy it is to see Philip here. Um, When I was uh, in national leadership, I have to say that uh, this brother, uh, was among those who was unfailingly encouraging. And I just want to honour him 
Uh, I know he's honoured here among the living leadership regulars, but I honour you, Philip, and praise the Lord for your life and your witness. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, attending uh, the 80th birthday of my best man. Uh, there was a time when I was invited to go to 18th birthday party, but I now go to 80th. And um, I remembered, we were reminiscing, I remembered how Pete and I, um, when we were in our second year at Spurgeon's College, spent a summer vacation in the United States traveling around. And uh, we went by Greyhound bus. And uh, through the kindness of our college principal and other friends, we had pre-booked hospitality with people we'd never met, part of God's wonderful family. We arrived in Dallas, got off the Greyhound bus after a many hours trip. Uh, the couple we were staying with, they identified themselves. We went across their car, luggage in the car, sat in the back of the car. Before the engine started, the guy looked around and he caught my eye and he said, um, are you boys premillennial dispensationists? <laughs> now, we were only second years as virgins earning big words like wheelbarrows, so... Um, but I got a scary feeling, and I was sharing this with Pete, that unless we got the right answer, we would not be having bed and breakfast in Dallas. So I heard myself saying, are you premillennial dispensationists? And they said, yes, we are. And we both said, amen. And they... <laughs> They started the engine, and that's how we came to have hospitality in Dallas. There are occasions when disciples uh, don't get it, and we'll see that this morning uh, in, our, in our reading. Uh, John Fry um, wrote a book called Jesus the Pastor, and it was recommended to me a number of years ago, and uh, it's, it's a valuable book on the shelf. He says in the preface how the old wolf would occasionally come and say, I'm going to huff and puff and blow your house down. And fearfully he would say to himself, will my pastoral house withstand the storm? Uh, he said, I felt at times it was at the point of collapse that I needed to get out and run for my life. And then little did I realize that the, the triumph and the tedium and the magnificence and the messiness were all part of shaping the church leader's life. The messiness of pastoring and the magnificence is what pastors us. You learn more, as I was saying last night, you learn more about pastoring, as it were, on the job than in the classroom. And that's why it's so important not to run from the house when the walls begin to shake. As a pastoral mentor uh, in the Southwest, I, I regularly begin uh, a fellowship session by asking pastors three questions. Uh, what's your greatest joy? What's your greatest challenge? What's your greatest revelation? And I guarantee that all of their answers normally involve people. And one of the challenges of pastoring people is the sheer diversity diversity of experience, of temperament, of their understanding of walking with Jesus. And uh, I hope as we turn to this particular passage this morning, uh, we will learn something about what it means to pastor. Yesterday it was Jesus in the field, and this morning it's Jesus in the valley, the valley of the shadow of death, walking with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So I want us to enjoy a pastoral reading of a familiar passage. 
I want us to find ourselves in the story, maybe in Martha, maybe in Mary, maybe in Lazarus, maybe in the uh, disciples themselves. But above all, don't miss the goal which Jesus clearly sets out in verse 4. This is where we'll begin, and this is where the story ends. This sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory, so that the Son of Man may be glorified. Jan and I are involved at the moment in um, uh, a complex pastoral situation. I disobeyed Marcus, I'm afraid. I kept my phone on. And last night, it was a blessing because I received a text to give me a progress report of the thing we're involved in. And my prayer has been that in verse 4, I don't want this pastoral situation to end in, in a mess. I want, I want, in ways I cannot see at the moment, I want glory to be brought to God. I want the Son of God to be glorified in the mess of this pastoral situation. So John chapter 11. You'll know that this chapter concludes the uh, signs, the seven signs. They began with the wedding of Cana, and it ends in the house of the dead, one wedding and a funeral. And Jesus, the pastor, enters our world of rites of passage. That's where a lot of our pastoring takes place. We are often in houses of joy and frequently in houses of the dead. His incarnation takes him to the very heart of our pastoral ministry. It's a beautiful story, John um, 11. It has movement and suspense, and as you know, it opens with this familiar scene of Jesus' friendship with a family, a home where the bonds of friendship are strong. His dear friend Lazarus is ill, and um, Mary is mentioned as the one who anointed his feet, and that story is told in full in chapter 12. Um, I think John doesn't put it before because the story is so well known, but this is what follows. And then we read in verse 3, Jesus, um, the Lord, the one you love is ill. We're told in verse 5 that Jesus loved this family. Jesus called Lazarus his friend, verse 11. And this friendship, this close friendship, when they see Jesus weeping, is confirmed in verse 36 when they say, see how Jesus loved him. I think Don Carson is absolutely right when he says that the story um, hints at some people being peculiarly loved by Jesus, and these three were among them. I, I found it moving when, when Graham prayed last night, thanking the Lord for the friend who was looking after Graham and Kate's children while they're away. And, and as all of us have, in our care for people, there will be special people where there is a particular bond. Don't run away from that. I, my dad, who was a pastor, was brought up on the adage, never have friends in the ministry. Well, you, you can't help. Jesus couldn't. He was drawn particularly to this family. Uh, notice, though, how by the end of the story, by the end of the chapter, because of his ministry to this family, his life is more endangered. Verse 57 of chapter 11, the chief priest in the light of the raising of Lazarus is ordering, let me know where he is so he can be arrested. The more deeply Jesus become involved with the friendship of this family, the more he's giving away his life. There is a pastoral 
principle there that all pastoring, especially friendship and pastoring that go together, is costly. So let's look at some of the cameo portraits that um, John draws here. Uh, in verses 7 to 16, I, I want to suggest that um, you have the disciples who, don't, who represent for us those who don't fully grasp what's happening. They find there's something deeply elusive about Jesus. That's why some commentators have called Jesus the Johannine Pimpernel, because there is an elusiveness about him. There are four things they find elusive. They don't grasp because they're thinking at a human level all that's happening. First of all, is timetabling. The timetabling of Jesus is very elusive. You would imagine that this man he loved, this family to whom he was so close, you would imagine that he would have dropped everything and immediately made off to, in order to be with the family, and yet he stays two days longer. Now, although the passage doesn't say until verse 7 the disciples knew, certainly in verse 7 we pick up that they're involved, whenever they hear the news, surely we can assume that they must be confused by the delay. They, they find Jesus elusive because suddenly he changes his mind. One moment we're not going, and the next minute we are going. This is this human level. And it reveals to us that the pastor is dependent on the Father's commands. We saw that in yesterday's passage. We see it again. We see it in Cana of Galilee. Another human need has arisen. It's a family wedding. The wine has run out. So Mary comes to Jesus and appeals to him to do something. And this is a mild rebuke to the mother. And he has to say to her, my, my time has not yet come. It sounds a harsh response, but we know Jesus is not without care or without compassion or without power. He will supply the wine. He will weep at the grave. He will raise the dead. But this pastor can only move in the timetable of the pastor, of the father. I can only do what I see the father doing. You don't grasp that at a human level. And the disciples were not grasping because they were still at that human level of understanding. Here's the second thing they found elusive, his lack of concern for personal safety. They find that puzzling, verse 8. You can see the human mind at work in them, their concern for the safety of Jesus. Jesus, the last time you were in Judea, the place you want to return, chapter 10, verse 31, people tried to stone you. Do you really want to go back into that war zone of conflict? Jesus, you're, you're walking into danger. They will try to kill you if you go there. The disciples are confused. They love, they trust, they have a commitment to Jesus, but they are operating at that human mindset level. You see this in John chapter 6. 5,000 hungry people, and Jesus asks a test question. He asks this question to test them, he has already in mind what he's going to do. And the test question is, how are we going to feed them? And so they give the answer, which I've heard many Baptist churches give time and time again. We cannot afford it. We do not have the money. Operating not at faith, but at a human mindset level. You see a third area where they are operating at a human mind level, they find Jesus' language very confusing. Verse 9, they're confusing his words of 
walking in the daylight with uh, travel, the physical dangers of travel. Walk in the daylight, you'll see where you're going. Walk at nighttime, you'll fall in the ditch. Jesus isn't talking about that. Elusively, he's saying, I'm the light of the world. And if the light is in you, then you will not walk in darkness. Stick close to me and you won't be tripped up because even the darkness is as light to me. And then there's the language in verses 11 and 12, which they find elusive, the language about Lazarus. His comments on Lazarus are perplexing. Lazarus has fallen asleep. We're going to wake him. So is he sleeping or is he dead? The disciples think that Jesus means that this is a, a fever and he's in a, in a deep sleep. So we've no need to go and put ourselves in danger, Jesus, because he'll sleep it off and whatever's made him poorly, he'll be well again. Jesus patiently, notice that, has to tell them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I was glad I was not there, so you may believe. So let's just go. This human way of looking at things comes to the height in Thomas. Dear Thomas, how will the pastor cope with this statement of Thomas? Let's paraphrase it. I haven't got a clue what's happening, but let's go anywhere and then we can all die together. Don't you think it's wonderful? This man who is probably representative of this mindset of discipleship, the human level of operation. It's wonderful that at the end of the gospel, the one who has stood out as the one with his doubts and his human mindset emerges with the most powerful testimony, my Lord and my God. And you and I know how disciples and ignorant discipleship, we struggle with that all the time in church leadership. And sometimes, let's be honest, we're part of that ignorance. We're called to work with people who don't fully grasp what God is doing. We're puzzled by God's way of doing things. And disciples, us included, who love Jesus. There isn't anybody here this afternoon, this morning, who doesn't love Jesus with purpose. But sometimes we are clueless when it comes to discerning God's plan and purpose. It's good to pray, Lord, give me strength with these people, but it's better to pray, Lord, give me your wisdom and discernment. A few months ago, I was on the phone to a much wiser man than me, a man called Don, and we were really struggling together on a, a church situation, and um, we were trying to battle our way through, and he said, let me just read James chapter 1 and verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, ask of him who gives liberally. So we did, and he did. It's interesting how Thomas possesses no deep understanding of anything that's happening. Fatalistically, well, let's just go with him anyway. There's no rebuke from Jesus. Lord, I long for that patience in my own heart with those you call me to pastor. Because Thomas's moment of truth will be in the upper room. This is not the moment. It's a reminder that we have to say what we hear the Father saying and do what the Father is doing. This is not the moment to tackle Thomas. It'll come. 
many years ago, Jan and I were um, uh, members of a, a youth group. There were about 150 of us went off to um, a conference as young people. And um, a, a beloved pastor called George Cummings, he pastored many years at Eastbourne, Victoria Eastbourne. Um, and we had a question time. And at question time, some of these youngsters were asking questions. And somebody said to this uh, experienced pastor, um, what's your biggest disappointment in life? And quick as a flash, he said, people. And we all looked at each other, 18-year-olds, with horror. How can a pastor say people are the biggest disappointment? I'd only been six months in ministry in Whetstone down the road, and I knew what he meant. Eugene Peterson asked a similar question. What do you find most challenging and enjoyable about ministry? He said, the mess. I sometimes... Um, in, in devotions, uh, if I've been working with a group of people, I, I will just imagine them sitting in the circle in the room where we meet. And uh, so here's, here's a, a guy who, um, whenever he opens his mouth to speak, I hear his wife speaking. Uh, and here's a, a woman doctor who is, is so... Um, clinical, precise, caring, but just always calm. And here's a busy mum who's part of the team, who has the annoying habit of, of always saying the phrase, everyone is sane, and you have to pin her down to discover there is two people in the church, but everyone is sane. And here's the guy who, when it gets a bit heated, he says, I'm going to go and put the kettle on. And we know that he just doesn't like conflict. And here's the self-employed nurseryman who is his own boss, and when he gets up in the morning, if he wants to buy a new tractor, he buys a new tractor. And um, he has no concept of, of just hearing what others are saying. And, and so it goes on. And I, as I, am, I draw, not an imaginary circle, I just pray, and I pray around each one of these, and I say to myself, Lord, why do they think in this earthly way? Why does Bible teaching confuse them? Is it me? Why do they always major on the minors? And above all, how can I help them to grasp what's happening in this situation? I think probably the most important point before we leave this is to notice this. They made the journey. Jesus didn't go off to the house of Lazarus without them. These people who don't grasp what's happening, Jesus takes him with them and their understanding will grow. That's a profound lesson for all of us. Here's the, uh, the second cameo portrait. It's Martha, who I believe represents for us the disciple who has a deeper faith than we discern. Uh, for a large part of my life, I've been what I call a tramp preacher, tramping from church to church, and um, often um, those who were working with me would send in advance a little biophile and saying, you know, this is something about David. They would always include that I'd been a Chelsea supporter since the 1960s before Abramovich uh, Rich years, uh, that I'm a member of the Elgar Society, and uh, that I'm frequently found at Heathrow. I was in those days off to somewhere in the world. And if there was a Martha or a Matt in charge, it was amazing how the detailed mind of these people would pick up amongst everything else that I sent out, 
they would pick up these interests. So I remember arriving in a church one day, and there on the table was a personally signed uh, picture of Gianfranco Zola when he played for, for Chelsea. Dear David, best wishes, Gianfranco Zola. Um, the, the musicians, sometimes it was a struggle for the musicians, but knowing of my love for Elgar, they would play something Elgarian. Uh, thankfully, not Nimrod, but um, something that would, you know, indicate they knew something about me. And best of all, um, there was one occasion when a Martha, uh, who worked for British Airways, got me an upgrade on the flight going out, all because Martha had taken the detail to take in the kind of things that I was involved in. So I confess to you this morning that I'm a member of the MFC, the Martha Fan Club. Uh, Marcus led us in our teen devotions this morning, and he chose the Luke 10 passage. And if all you know of Martha is, is Luke 10, where she's a woman betrayed, uh, portrayed as somebody obsessed with serving, um, then I can understand why people don't really go for Martha. But here, you have an alternative portrait. You see, I think Martha was somebody who had a very significant ministry. We need to honor her for that. The word Bethany means house of the poor. When you read through to chapter 12, this is the uh, objection of Judas. This house of the poor was where people like Jesus, many more besides, came for respite care. They were like us. They wanted pastoral refreshment. They were poor and needy and sick, sometimes in body, sometimes in soul. That's why I think there was a special affection in the heart of Jesus for this hope, not only because he came to save the sick and the needy, but because there were times when he needed pastoral refreshment and this home gave it to him. So I think this woman is a very significant woman in the story, the gospel story. She was running a demanding setup, struggling to gain a balanced life, trying to balance the administrative needs of the organization with sitting at the feet of Jesus, drinking in his teaching. And in one moment of her life, Luke chapter 10, she criticized her sister for doing just that, prayer and no work. She appeals to Jesus, as you know. Don't you care that my sister has left me with all this work? And on that day, that day, Jesus had to rebuke her for the lack of balance, not because she had no appetite for friendship and fellowship with Jesus. I think this story shows that this senior administrator of a major op operation, it was a full-time job. Her burdens did sometimes blind her to fellowship with Jesus, but not here in Luke 11. You and I know people like Martha. Isn't it typical of Martha? The Martha and Matt's of this world, verse 20, she went out to meet Jesus. She was on the lookout for him coming. Lord, I thank you this morning because the church of Jesus would be poorer without the contribution of Martha and Matt. Honor it. We think we've got Martha pigeonholed as a type of believer. She's all admin and no prayer. She's all organization and no faith. Well, surprise, surprise. This is Martha's moment in the sun. Firmer in her faith, more grounded in her faith than you discern. And her firm faith is about to 
flower. Follow this conversation very closely. Look at verse 21. Jesus, she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died because you are a healer. And it's not too late. God will give you whatever you ask. You know what Romans chapter 5 and verse 3 says, we rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces perseverance. This, my friend, is Martha persevering with Jesus. Jesus, it's, it's not too late. Ask God and he will give you all that you ask. This isn't a woman walking away. This isn't a shallow faith. I think this trial of Lazarus, her dear brother, reveals just how much trust she had invested in Jesus. And the delay is only going to serve to deepen her fellowship with Jesus. Jesus replies, your brother will rise again. Standard teaching of the Hebrew scripture, which every faithful Jew believed. She's a faithful Jewess and she knows Isaiah 65 and 66. She knows about the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, a brand new cosmos with no pain or grief. That's why she finds it easy to respond to the creed. Lord, I, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And I love this moment. It's as if Jesus is saying to her, Martha, stand still and listen to me. And this is an awesome moment for a busy woman. And we need to sit still and capture this moment. Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though they die. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, up front and personal, do you believe this? Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. This is Martha's revelatory moment. She's made the long journey from I know to I believe. I pray for every pastoral situation I'm involved in, and I'm sure you do as well. Ephesians 3.20 Lord, you are able to do far more exceeding abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. There's more happening here than the raising of Lazarus. There's a ripple in the pond of pastoral work that is taking place. And at this moment, we see God's deep work taking place in the light of this wonderful woman, busy manager in the house of the poor, fruitfully active in God's service, and the Lord is discerning an incredible depth of faith in her. I say it to my heart as I ask you to say it to yours. Never, ever overlook the potential 
are those who appear to be managing the process while we ready to get on with the real stuff. Everybody needs to be involved in that process of deepening their fellowship with Jesus. Lord, put into the heart of these sisters and brothers right now the Marthas in their life so that when we go back home, we can grace the Martha and the Mats of this world with a friendship that previously they have not owned. Maybe we've been blind to Martha or Matt. So Lord, just quicken in us right now. Who is it that needs this refreshing, this deepening of faith? I don't know who first uh, gave me this um, illustration, but um, I found it powerful in my own life, and, and you'll recognize it. The, uh, you know how sometimes people use you as a well, and uh, they come and they let their bucket down. Uh, they want uh, a bucket full of wisdom, a bucket full of care, a bucket full of guidance. And, and one day they let the bucket down, and the bucket rattles down, and it hovers around down there, but the well is empty. And up comes the bucket and there's nothing in there and maybe they don't know that, but you know it. And that's why we're here at a pastoral refreshment conference that we might come for a fresh supply of living water. Lord, just fill me up because people do draw from me. So I want to draw from you with joy. You will draw water from the never running dry wells of salvation. And I must have used that um, at a communion service. And one of our Marthas came up to me after the service and she said, that was me. This is one of the loyal, busiest. Uh, if people wanted to be transported, to be fed, to be visited in hospital for flour, you know the kind of person. But she said, I've been operating from an empty well. And I just asked that the Lord would fill me up afresh. And that Martha, on that occasion, was topped up with living water to go out and return to all that wonderful, reviving ministry of management, but with a heart full of faith. God bless you, Martha. The third portrait is Mary. And Mary represents the broken-hearted who provoke a tender response in Jesus. Mary brings out a very different response from Jesus. It's the same family, it's the same family crisis, but a very different response. And it's a reminder how discerning we have to be uh, with people. It's interesting how Martha runs and finds Mary. Martha didn't need that prompting, but Mary does. Teacher is here and calling for you. Mary has to be prompted to find Jesus, and when she comes, she falls at his feet and cries from the heart, echoing the words of Martha, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus could have played the tape, as I was saying to your sister Martha a few moments ago, Lazarus will rise again, I'm the resurrection and the life. But with Mary, there is a difference. Mary kneels and weeps. And apart from those brief words, she's a woman of few words. And the Bible reveals that Mary has a very different, more intimate relationship with Jesus. Luke 10, she sat 
at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching. Uh, John 12, she anoints, kneels and anoints the feet of Jesus. And now she kneels before Jesus, weeping. It's a very tender relationship, a greater sense of spiritual intimacy, a greater freedom to express and explore deep feelings. We know people like that. And if we're honest, we're either comfortable or uncomfortable with this kind of temperament. I don't know any pastor who isn't wary of church members who come up and say, during my whole night of prayer and fasting, pastor, for our needy church, at three o'clock this morning, I heard the Lord say to me clearly, now, you may warmly welcome that, but for me, sometimes that rings warning bells. I'm just being honest with you. That, that kind of special intimacy with God, uh, unless it's carefully managed, unless it comes out of a holy life, um, the pastoral heart in me is sometimes a little suspicious. This is the relationship that some people have with the Lord. I was traveling with Janet in um, Ecuador and... Uh, we were taken to see one of the street kid projects in Quito. Uh, a remarkable pastor's daughter, uh, Angelica, 18 years of age. I think by the time she had the vision for helping street kids at 18, by the time we got there, she was 21. And um, she had just been walking home and found these children uh, sitting by the gate and said to her, Mum, we need to feed them. So two came in and when it became 14 and dad couldn't get a place at the table, they needed to do something. By the time we got there, there was a huge day school, feeding, teaching, 150 kids. As we drove away, the pastor said to me, that was Angelica. Were you impressed? I said, yes. He said, do you know what we nicknamed her? I said, no. He said, we call her Jesus' girlfriend. I said, why do you call her Jesus' girlfriend? Because Jesus seems to tell her things that he doesn't tell anybody else. I was asked to conduct uh, the wedding of my niece and her husband. Um, I come from a very Christian family, and my wife, Jan, is the only Christian in her family. And through the years, I've become the unofficial chaplain to this family, so I do weddings and funerals and say grace at meals. Thankfully, I'm not called upon to do bar mitzvahs, so that's very, very good. And... Uh, my, my niece, or Jan's niece, without saying anything to us, had gone to a, a local Baptist church, not told us this, and spoken to the pastor and said, you know, would you marry us? And he said yes. And then she revealed who her uncle was and said, well, would you mind if my uncle did it? And uh, I didn't know the guy, but he said, yes, that'll be fine. So um, you'll understand with, I think Jan and I were probably the only Christians there. I wanted to get this right. So we carefully sort of framed the service and everything was wonderful. And, and when I got there, they had provided a pianist and this pianist was a, a Mary. And she said, oh, I'm really pleased to meet you, David. She said, um, early this morning, the Lord spoke to me concerning this wedding and my heart began to sing. And, um, and I, I've got something I'd like to share during the wedding service. Um, I said, what do you want to share? Well, she said, um, the Lord gave me a piece of music. I just want to play it. So I began to feel a little bit more relaxed. And uh, I suggest, well, why don't we do it there? When it came to the moment that she played this tune that God had given her, it was amazing. It was 
very appropriate for the wedding, incredibly ethereal, and this woman didn't know a bean about my family. The truth is that uh, this woman who was married, getting married, both her mum and dad had died and uh, they weren't there. And When we got back to the reception, um, she came across at some point, put her arm through both of ours, thanked me for the wedding, and she said, do you know what the high point of the wedding was? I said, what's that? She said, that piece of music. Her dad was a, a gifted pianist. He played in a jazz band. And she said, I actually felt my mum and dad were present. That, that music was so heavenly and it was just, just so like my dad playing. That was such a blessing to me. That's Mary. And in verses 33 to 35, Mary's emotional life is incredibly open so that when Jesus sees her weeping and the crowd of mourners, he is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Mary's grief touches Jesus deeply. We observe the broken-hearted pastor. His tears provoke tears from him. It's one of the most remarkable moments in the whole gospel story, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse and the most eloquent. The tears of Jesus revealing a real flesh and blood human being. When we look at Jesus in tears, we're seeing the word made flesh. The word through whom the worlds were made weeps at the grave of a friend. Surely that deepens our understanding of the Lord who calls us and sustains us in our ministry. This is the Lord who enters our church mess of pain and brokenness. He, surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Remember I spoke about uh, my friend Dr. Dave, uh, what a great pastor consultant at the Marsden Hospital. He and I um, at one point went to see a, a dear man who had had a double bereavement. Um, Bill had um, lost his son. His son had committed suicide. His only son, his only child. And then his wife, in the days when people would dry their washing over the gas fire, his wife had got up on a stool to to hang washing and her apron caught fire and she sustained terrible burn, burns and they transferred her to Stoke Mandeville and she lived for a couple of weeks but uh, she died. And the saddest of all was that every morning the bill came into the kitchen and, and drew the curtains. The council house he lived in looked out on the graveyard where both his son and his wife were, were buried. When we went there, I, I learned from David one of the first things early on in my ministry, how important it is to use body language. I could have just sat there and listened to his story, but David prompted me. We both got up when Bill began to tell his story, and we just knelt alongside Bill and held his hand as he told the story. And at the end of it, he gave to me as his pastor this diary. He's gone to glory. 
And this diary is just the things he wrote down when he had drawn the curtains in the morning and looked down from the grave and he came into a better place. But what do I learn from this episode of Jesus drawing out of him tears for Mary? There are some things, friends, that must never be delegated in our busy pastoring. Like Jesus, we must become at times personally involved in the deep grief of people who are broken. It'll shape us. I love Herman Ridderboss's phrase at this moment. For those who believe in Jesus, he never comes too late. Look at the next portrait that uh, John draws for us. Jesus at the height of the family crisis demonstrates his pastoral authority. This is verse 38. Remember I quoted Derek Tidball yesterday. And here he is again in the same section in Builders and Fools. Walking in the valley of the shadow of death confronts the pastor with his own emotions. You can't be deeply involved. We've already seen it in the life of Jesus, but there's more to come. I, I confess before you that at a funeral, one of the hardest moments is the opening minutes of the service. Uh, if it's in that tradition where the coffin's being brought in and the mourners take their place in the front row, this can be the moment when they show overwhelming grief as the service goes on, especially with uh, Christian families, um, they become stronger. But at that moment, they look so vulnerable and it can touch you deeply. How many times have you walked up the path to a bereaved house? You've just heard the news, you're feeling weak and futile. You know that you've got to say something and do something as pastors, we know the desire to express the appropriate emotion and exercise spiritual authority. Now, all that is clearly seen in Jesus the pastor at this moment. Jesus has wept with grief, with Mary and the mourners, but he now expresses his anger at the tomb. You'll have preached on this passage. You've looked at verse 38. You've studied the commentaries. Amazingly, they're uniformly in agreement at this moment of time. This is anger, an outburst of anger. He became angry in spirit, outraged in spirit, uncontrollable grief and inexpressible anger. Maybe it's the wrath of the Lamb, book of Revelation. Calvin, Christ doesn't come to the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for a contest. The anger of Jesus is directed at the violent tyranny of death and as the champion the wrestler who is going to prepare for the conflict when death will be defeated death has destroyed the life of his beloved friend and had brought deep distress on this family and it's in this grief that jesus sees the mystery of the human race and burns with rage against the enemy death is not going to have the final word it's against the power of death that god's son will stand victorious I like Don Carson's phrase, Jesus at this moment is raging against all the devastating features of this fallen world. And those who follow Jesus will do well to learn this tension. Grief and compassion without outrage produce and reduce the pastor to mere sentiment. 
outrage without grief hardens the pastor into self-righteous arrogance. Grief and compassion without outrage sentiment. Outrage without grief self-righteous arrogance. We need the fullness of emotional response. And the self-control of the pastor is eventually challenged into the pastoral authority at the tomb. Take away the stone. Jesus, the champion, stands at the entrance to the tomb. God grants this spiritual authority to his son and to the under-shepherds. Never be so overwhelmed with grief and identifying with a broken-hearted family that you lose your pastoral authority. Again, an illustration from my own family. Um, two or three years ago, my then brother-in-law, Doug, was, was dying in the Royal Marston Hospital in London. Jan's mother died when she was six, and her sister had assumed the motherly role. Her dad died a few years later, so her sister and brother-in-law had really been her parents. Her not practicing believers, but not unbelievers. I would say God-fearers, God-respecters, and a huge um, respect and joy for Jan and myself. It, it was lovely to behold. Um, he was one of the organizing committee for the Surrey Bowls Club, so he went to more funerals than was good for him. And um, he would sometimes see me. He says, one of yours let the side down today? I said, why is that? He said, well, he said, I went to this funeral. The vicar never mentioned the guy's name. He said, I call that very unprofessional. So he's dying. He has just a few days to live. And we go in. And yes, we have emotion. But I knew, as you would, that at the right moment, I had to exercise some pastoral authority to a man who didn't profess to know the Lord, but he's one step away from eternity. And so I always take my little pocket testament with me. Um, I'd given away as many New Testaments as the Gideons, and the Gideons supply me, and I pass them on. I turn to Psalm 23. I'm sure you've done this. When you read Psalm 23 with the dying man, you say, Lord, for this moment, this was written. It's powerful. And then I say to him, Doug, I'd, I'd like to say the Lord's Prayer. So we hold, three of us hold hands. Having said Psalm 23, we say the Lord's Prayer. Another powerful piece of pastoral authority. And a few days later, he died. We have deep peace that rather like the thief on the cross, this dear man, Doug, made his peace with his Lord in those final moments of his life. But then came the moment when, again, more emotion at Leatherhead Crematorium, which is in a beautiful setting. Again, I think we were probably the only Christians at that service. They were standing. They all had their, you know, bowling jackets on and... Uh, I said, Doug tells me that sometimes you have these places, uh, services for those who've been in your bowls club, they don't name him. So I gave them all his names. I told them all his history. But then I told them what I've just told you. And I said, whenever you attend a funeral, 
It's really a dress rehearsal for your funeral. And therefore, we're going to say Psalm 23. We're going to repeat the Lord's Prayer together. Because this is probably, as it was for Doug, this is probably a most important moment in your life, and I don't want you to miss it, in your grief. Lord, empower us as pastors to have that pastoral authority in every single situation to stand as a representative of heaven's champion before open graves and say, take away the stone. And it has a wider application to church life. When in your grief and your perplexity, you're overwhelmed with what shall I do? Well, then, pastors, you will stand at many cold tombs of impossibility. A hard-hearted leadership who will not say yes to the way the Lord is going. A brass-necked fellowship who don't like to be led. A church that is high in organization and low in faith. Take upon yourself not just emotional response, but the spiritual authority of Jesus and his prayerful dependence on his Father. And then, of course, you, uh, you see finally the believer in God's glory. I must just check. Before I go to that, let me go back. Because there's something important that I, that I missed. You'll see at verse 39, Martha, the practical realist, resorts to her default position. Lord, don't take away the stone. Think of the smell. And Jesus offers her the mildest rebuke. Didn't I tell you, Martha, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. And we now discern why the delay of Jesus in coming to the tomb has happened. Because after four days, Satan has assumed a fullness of authority and destruction. The enemy, once again, friend, has overreached himself. How many times does that happen? Can you imagine Jesus saying, O grave, do your worst in the life of, life of Nazareth. O, uh, o, o death, imagine you have victory over my friend Lazarus. Because the angry pastor, the authoritative pastor, verse 41 now becomes the praying pastor. Jesus prays aloud, Father, I thank you that you've heard me and always hear me. His life, a total life of asking and receiving. The kind of praying we're invited to enter. Don't hesitate to come to your great high priest who hears your feeble requests. As a pastor, you are not alone in this task. We need the confidence to believe that the spiritual authority flows from that throne of grace in our hours of crisis. He hears our prayers. So when you're ankle deep in a church mess, pastoring a bewildered congregation, caring for a frightened family, coping with angry pressure groups in the community, Father, I thank you that you've heard me and you always hear me. Take away the stone. And then the believer in God's glory in verse 43. This is the final portrait. Passive Lazarus receiving the power of God in his life, responding to the command, Lazarus, come out. He comes out. Lazarus, not a man of few words, a man of no words. Lazarus, unlike his sisters, is speechless. He never says his word, a word. And yet, 
His life is a gospel story. I have come that they might have life, new life the dead receive. Here is the promise of Jesus being lived out in the life of this man. He performs one action. He emerges from the tomb when Jesus gives the command, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The story of Lazarus is the story of the gospel. Because as Lazarus emerges from the tomb, so Jesus will emerge from his tomb. And unless Jesus comes again, we will emerge from our tombs, even as we emerge from the dark tomb of sin, the day we were saved, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This is the story of the gospel. But don't you think it's an abrupt end to an amazing story? In our celebrity culture age, See, our amazing celebrity culture would immediately have microphones in the face of Lazarus. How was it? What did you feel? What's it like to be back again? There would be book tours and interviews, and there's not a word of testimony from any member of the family. What did you think of that? No follow-up comment from any of the disciples. All we're told, verse 45, is the fruitful result. Many saw what happened and put their faith in Jesus. So what Jesus said would be the outcome has been the outcome. All this has happened for God's glory, so that the Son of Man may be glorified. My mate Phil Greenslade um, tells the story of how he was watching uh, the BBC programme, The Antiques Roadshow, and members of the public were bringing heirlooms in, and um, somebody, one woman, brought in two stained, cracked porcelain pots and presented them for valuation. They were soon identified as fairly commonplace, houseware from Japan dating to the 1930s. But when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, the porcelain in these pots was fired again, this time to over 1300 degrees centigrade, so the pots had begun to crack and the glaze had started to crystallize. The valuer said two things. He said they're very ordinary domestic utensils and in themselves they're worth nothing. But in connection with the story, they're priceless. That's why there is no comment on Mary, Martha, Lazarus and the disciples. Because in connection with the story, it's the story of the raising of this man and glory coming to Jesus and people believing that's what matters. There's a passive side to all we do. There's a passive side to our preaching. The Holy Spirit goes on speaking long after you have stopped speaking. You know the Philippians passage, we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, and don't we work hard. But remember, God is at work to willing to do his good pleasure. And in our pastoring, he must increase I must decrease. He must get the glory in this pastoral situation being worked out. Let everybody point to Jesus and say, you alone, Lord.
Yes, your care and your understanding and everything else came through all these wonderful people, but to God be the glory. Because in ourselves, our lives are not worth much. (laughs) But in connection with the story, that's what makes them priceless. Let me show you two pictures and give you a little invitation. I want you to respond to the invitation of Jesus, the pastor, two pastors. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you you rest. Take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Two oxen plowing, a picture from the first century. The older, more experienced, is yoked to the younger and less experienced. That was the principle. Jesus knew about yokes because he made them in the carpenter's shop with Joseph. My yokes fit well, they won't rub your shoulder. So get yoked to him as a leader. Jesus says, be yoked to my wisdom, my experience of pastoring people, my understanding of the Father's will. Study this picture because in your tool shed, his yoke is hanging. Take it down. Say to Jesus, the pastor, this morning, I'm responding to your invitation. I want to take your yoke upon me, and I want to learn from you. Please let me be yoked to you as my pastor so that I can pastor others as you pastor me. Let's pray. Lord, only by your Holy Spirit can we move beyond a human understanding of this wonderful gospel story that brings glory to you. So in dozens of ways, in this wonderful room of rich pastoral ministry and experience, apply your word. And as you make it a blessing to us, so may it be a blessing to those who you've called us to pastor, yoked to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings. Blessings.